0: Uh, One of the struggles that a pastor has that that people in other ministries don't have, one of the struggles that a pastor has is maintaining a balance, not a balance that's status quo. Uh, When I interviewed one of the ladies in the Hebrides Island in 2009 who had come to Christ in the Hebrides revival of 1949, and I, I interviewed her about the condition of the church uh, before the revival, she said that it can be best described as desperately normal. Um, and I think I, it, that that speaks to me of sort of a status quo balance. The balance I'm talking about is 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 the challenge a pastor faces in navigating the people of God through the number of voices that rise in the nation that say, no, this is that this this is it. This is, if you want to know God, this is it. prayer is it, right? And you, you've got to pray. And when once you pray, everything else gets solved. You no, know, sometimes when once you pray, all hell breaks loose, right? And so it's, it's never one thing. Uh, a, a professor that helped me immensely in my doctoral program up at, up at UBC in Canada sit, ta- taught me about dialectic tension. And I'm not trying to get high confluting on you this morning. But simply put, dialectic tension is when you put two seemingly opposing thoughts this elbow representing one, this elbow the other. And you put them, you hook them up, and you have them tug on each other. That's called a dialectic tension. And he said, in reality, you know, like, like the, the traditional argument of Calvinism, right, which is my left elbow, once saved, always saved. God determines, predetermines who's going to be saved and who's going to be damned. And, and then the other, Arminianism, that kind of sometimes leans towards uh, You've got enough strength in you and ability in you to, to respond to God and know without the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, we can't do anything. But, but you've got to put those two things together. Don't, don't, don't ever be tempted to live in one camp or the other. It's never one thing or the other. All right? It, it's, you say, well, it's just faith. It's just, you just got to have faith. Well, no, James kind of hit that thing on the head, right? When he said, no, faith without works is dead. Right. So is it is it all faith? Yes. Faith is very important. And it kind of that kind of sets me up this morning for what I want to talk to you a little bit. I want to do sort of a follow on from last night. And I want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit, because my dad, one of my dad's favorite sayings is the Holy Spirit is not a labor saving device. Because the impression that Pentecostal preachers, including me, sometimes give is you just need the Holy Spirit. You just need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And and our evangelical brothers and sisters accuse us of being sort of uh, Holy Spirit driven and we forget Jesus. And the challenge of the Christian life, again, is you've got to keep all of that in balance. Is it just Jesus? Well... Yes, it is. He is the source of our salvation. But don't forget, because God so loved the world, he gave. And so don't forget the love of God, right? But but fortunately, when when Jesus left this earth, he said, it's good that I go away. And I'm sure his disciples must have said, what is he talking about? It's good that he's going to go. It makes no sense. Well, he, he knew because when he went away, he was sending us the, the Holy Spirit. And... And yes, even though we're Pentecostal, but it's not just the Holy Spirit. It's all of that. Right. You've got to learn to to navigate your Christian life. And, and and a pastor has a great challenge to keep the congregation moving. In you know, I remember a few years ago, it was just it was holy laughter. I don't know if any of you remember that everything was holy laughter. And the new revival was going to be holy laughter. And if you're not laughing, then there's something wrong with you. Right. And this was it. Well, it turns out it wasn't it. Right. Because it came and went. And here we are. Right. Still got to. When once you're done laughing, your feet got hit the ground and you got to go to work on Monday morning. Right. And and so just just we got to we've we, we got to be careful, even though I want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit and the book of Acts. We got to be careful that it's never just one thing. Don't let anybody convince you or try to tell you it's just one thing. No, it's a lot of things that we're working on and that are at work in our lives. One of, my, one of my good friends who used to be the president of the Church of God Seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee, Dr. Steve Land, one of the most brilliant men. Oh, can I, before I get there, I just want to say we've got resources back there at the table. Uh, I don't get a penny from this. Westgate Chapel doesn't get a penny. Everything that we from these books that we sell on revival go to the gentleman that published them. And uh, but we he's too old now to even manage orders. So we took a half a semi from Wheaton, Illinois, to Seattle. And my goal is just to get stories of old revivals into the hearts and lives of all of us because they just ignite faith in us that if God could do it here, he could do it again. One of my one of my favorite books is, is a, the most expensive book I've got is a book I found a first edition in England published in 1908 uh, called England before and after Wesley. And it really is a book I'd love every pastor to read. I, I, I only have one copy, but but because it tells us that in England before the revival, the first great awakening in the 1700s, England was in worse shape than we're in now. Children were orphaned and being forced into labor in the streets of London, right? And prisons were the most horrific thing you could even imagine. More people were being hanged for stealing a loaf of bread than for anything anything else. It was England was in a mess, right? And and so that encourages us because, because we're in a mess right now. But nothing is ever too messy for God. He can step in and fix things like he's done on Auburn University campus in a heartbeat and turn things around that we preachers have been trying to do, spend a lifetime doing. So so then the middle half of the uh, a third of the book is about revival. And then the, then the last half is about all the things that changed out of revival. So these kind of books are back there for you. I don't have that particular book, but these books are back there for you to take advantage of, hopefully to fill your heart With expectation for what the Lord's gonna do. So Steve Land, back to Steve Land. Sorry to just kind of my wife would be talking to me from the front row if she was here. That's why I don't bring her on trips like this. No, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um Steve Land wrote a tremendous book on called Pentecostal Spirituality. Uh And has shaped my thinking just tremendously on the whole subject of Pentecostal theology and experience. And he said something so profound to me about the early church. He said the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. uh, And when you think about it, you, you realize this is true. The baptism of the Holy Spirit caused that early church to be birthed into instant maturity. It's not the baby church. It's not it wasn't a baby church that was born on the day of Pentecost. But 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 God ushered them by the power of the Holy Spirit into instant maturity. And some of the examples of that instant maturity were I just want to run by them fast with you sort of machine gun. But it was authentic worship. Which again, praise God you you guys are experiencing it here you, you you're you're already there, but the worship was authentic it wasn't driven from some phony platform kind of activity it doesn't take a bunch of smoke and mirrors to get people wound up for for worship we 're just here to to glorify God you shouldn't have to be coerced into it, and when the Church was birthed in the book of Acts. Worship was authentic and genuine. And that's the touch of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the 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 verses, Acts chapter two, and verse eleven. Because when once the, the upper room experience happened, those hundred and twenty disciples burst immediately into the marketplace, which I personally believe was the was around the use the, the, there used to be a massive courtyard near the upper room around the tomb of David. And people would have gathered there for, for, for traditional Old Testament Pentecost experience. And so when Peter and the disciples headed out of the upper room under the influence of the Holy Spirit, there was an automatic crowd there waiting on them. And it says that, that the crowd said that they heard them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's worship. I personally believe, and this is just, Pastor can correct me, uh, can fix you up after I leave. I personally believe tongues is simply, it's not anything to focus on. It's the Holy Spirit we focus on. And the tongues that come with that is like God's gracious. You know, my mom used to cook everything in a pressure cooker when I was growing up. Right. And there was a container for broccoli. There was a container for for potatoes. There was a container and then the meat was on the bottom. It was one of those wonderful cooking principles that when she was done, everything came out tasting exactly the same as everything else. It was it was uh, don't go to British people for cooking. They don't know how to cook. And and but but mom had to when she taken it off the fire, she had a little valve and she had to push that valve and let the. residual steam out. I personally believe tongues is just a merciful gift of God because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not really just an experience. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an immediate and marvelous encounter with the living God that suddenly in our broken, frail humanity, we catch a glimpse of who he is and praise God. He's given us tongues to just lift up our hearts like they did on the day of Pentecost and just move straight into worship that can bypass our mind and doesn't have to be limited by our vocabulary or our thoughts. But suddenly we can move into a heavenly language and magnify his name so that the church went immediately into authentic worship. Number two, they immediately went into a tremendous love for one another. All of us are by nature selfish people. I'm a selfish person. Right. I, 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 I like my space and my things and I got, that's a battle that we all face, but immediately they went into an incredible love for one another. Acts chapter two, verse 44, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. Ooh, That's hard for me to even think about. Right, I got certain ways I like my car to be, and certain ways I like my office to be. And I'm not sure I want to share them with other people. Don't mess, don't pr- move my books around. Don't touch anything on my. You know, I am just telling you, I I can repent later in the altar area. And and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any needed. Because after the day of Pentecost, there were there were the some scholars believe fifty to hundred thousand believers that were touched by pentecost and ended up in this new testament church many of them had traveled from other countries to get there and so they had to have a place to live it it wasn't a matter of it was just a matter of those believers around jerusalem needed to do something to help house and feed suddenly this whole influx of people that didn't want to go home because they knew if they went home there'd be nothing like what they were experiencing in jerusalem Right? So this incredible love for one another. Next, there was a high level of commitment. And they devoted themselves. 242. A pastor's already somebody already mentioned. They devoted themselves. That word devoted means like super glued yourself, which we've all done to stuff, and we have to figure out how to get our thumb out. And they'd superglued themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers with a high level of commitment. We're being told that that's maturity. We're told now there's sort of a sliding scale going on with what committed a co- pastors probably told you guys already, but committed Christians 10, 20 years ago used to be in church one out four out of, uh, of every four weeks in a month, unless they were on vacation. Now that number has slipped to, to the committed, the committed believer is in church, maybe one Sunday in six. So I'm not even sure they're saved. Much less filled with the Holy Spirit because when the Holy Spirit moved like this, these folks were gathering together every day. I'm not saying you have to be in the church every day, but there's a high level of commitment to each other. Next, there's great unity. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Chapter 4, verse 32, those who believed were of one heart and soul. We can disagree about many different things, but we need to have one heart and soul, right? And next, these are all signs of mature, mature church, fearless preaching. This is the guy who denied the Lord not many months earlier before this happened. Now he's out there saying, let all in his first sermon he ever preached, let all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he knew when he preached that he might just as likely be the next one. Right? So fearless preaching and ministry. That's not just for pastors. That's for all of us. And then a deep sense of conviction that led, led to true repentance. Now, when they heard this Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? That's I, I pray for that for Westgate Chapel. I prayed for that for First New Testament church. That when one of your pastors or your senior pastor is up here preaching the word, that there would be such a powerful touch of the Holy Spirit that brings people to conviction. Right. I've told you, I said to you yesterday, I think it was Charles Finney that tells stories about he. Sometimes he wouldn't even get through his reading his text before the sermon. And many would come groaning, grown men. Uh, Known in the town for being independent street fighting men would fall on their faces in repentance in the front. That's where the whole idea of the anxious seat came from. And so, and one story quickly about Charles, Charles Finney in the middle of the revival in the city of Rome in New York, the men were groaning so out loud, involuntarily out of conviction in the middle of the service that he realized in his mind, he realized there's too much emotion here for people to make good decisions about Jesus. So he said to them, we're going to terminate this meeting right now. And he said, I want you to leave and go home and not talk to a soul on your way home. And I want you men, I want you to stop crying out and stop groaning. I want you to go home and let this message settle in your heart. Come back tomorrow and we'll let you settle up with God. And what what preacher today would do that? Right. And so, yeah, the story is when when men left the sanctuary, some of them had their hand over their mouth to prevent them. These are grown men. Right. Prevent themselves from. That's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And these 3000 plus were just crying out. What are we what are we going to do? And that's when Peter tells them to to repent. So a deep sense of conviction and then signs and wonders. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts 2.43. And then lastly, just another sign of great maturity. They were all an effective witness. They were praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Stunning attributes of a mature church. God make Westgate Chapel like that. But here's where I want to just kind of land this morning and wrap up. Is it the Holy Spirit, all Holy Spirit? Does he instantly make you mature? Well, obviously he did in with these people gathered in the New Testament church in Jerusalem. Uh, or or is, it, is it our response to the Holy Spirit? W- which is it? That's a dialectic tension. And like my dad used to say, Holy Spirit's not a labor-saving device. That's why there are as many Pentecostal pastors, tragically, over the last 50 years in America, who have crashed and burned as there are evangelical pastors who have crashed and burned. doesn't seem to be a guarantee that you're going to be super holy and walking in obedience to the Lord. So so is it Holy Spirit or is it is it you? And I just want to wrap up by saying I think, I think it's the answer is yes. We can't have this kind of maturity without the Holy Spirit. But you won't. The Holy Spirit can't bring you to this level of maturity unless he gets a response from you. And the danger with the way American. Well, most churches are set up, not just American. Is you got a bunch of seats facing the front. And then you've got a guy up front or a lady up front. And, um. And hopefully the Lord inspires them to say something and you figure uh, you figure out it's it's good for them. That's on them. Uh, Hope they can do that. And you feel like you have no responsibility to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to do the things that Holy Spirit is so famous for doing. And I just want to say to you this morning, yes, this is Holy Spirit measure of a mature believer and a mature church, but it's as much in your hands as it is in the Holy Spirit's hands. Um, I wouldn't say it's an equal partnership, right? Because we know it's 99% him, but he's not going to do what he's going to do with that one missing 1%, which is you and me. So let me just look just quickly with you at, At a couple of different responses, a couple from inside Jerusalem and a couple from outside Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And just look at how different these two outcomes were based on how people responded to the Holy Spirit. And let me just let me give you an example. Let's start in Acts chapter four at the end of chapter, chapter four with someone by the name of Barnabas. I have a son in law that we call Barnabas. Because no matter how dark things are getting, right, we were told in, in Washington, we couldn't gather for Thanksgiving. No, our our governor said, you may not have family over even. And so our son-in-law, they have a bigger house, and our son-in-law would come and pick Rita and me up, and we'd duck down in the car. And Because he also gave a phone number where you could turn your neighbors in. So we'd, we'd duck down, and Mike would drive into the garage, and we'd get out. That's how ridiculous it got, right? right? And then he would leave and go someplace else and get my other son-in-law and daughter and their kids and they duck down to bring them in right and we had this incredible thanksgiving dinner even with no masks on <clears throat> you can't it's hard to eat a turkey with a mask on but but here we are and my daughter had gotten a picture of our governor and had had, had pasted it on the window outside the dining room so we could we'd see our precious governor pray for him while he's over there but, But Mike, my son, one of my sons-in-law, he can see the good in anything, right? We're all, you know, and Mike is saying, well, you know, it says Mike's, Mike's Barnabas. Uh, Don't tell him I said that, okay? Uh, Barnabas literally means son of encouragement, right? And Barnabas responds. To this Holy Spirit move, sees the need around for the believers that need housing suddenly because they can't go home, many of them, and they need food. And so he, he with others, sees the need. Holy Spirit works on him, right? And he goes home and sells a piece of property. Uh, and brings the proceeds and lays them at the feet of the apostles uh, because he he he's responsive. Pastor asked you this morning about your offering to support the local church. I love what he said because when you're giving your tithe to the local church, you see where the money is going. You can see. You've, I'm sure you have people who are responsible for how it's spent, and there's accountability for how it's spent. And when you give here, you're not giving to some organization that says. They're doing missions, but eight out of every ten dollars you send there actually line the pockets of the administration. I'm not saying they're all like that, but but giving here is so important. And so the money was being brought in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and men like Barnabas, the son of encouragement, saw the need and recognized he could do something about the need. God had blessed him with that property and he sold the property and brings the money to the feet of the elders. Okay, that's a that's a a human response. Barnabas was responsible for Barnabas and the Holy Spirit moving on Barnabas in Pentecost power touched Barnabas and he said, yes, Lord. You have, you know, that 1947 MG I mentioned last night when when we we had an arson fire in 97 in the church about five years after we started prayer meetings and somebody started an arson fire. I was called on time change Sunday of 1997 by the police department and half of our church, the fellowship hall, all the pastors offices, Sunday school space, the kitchen, everything was just a pile of of ash and rubble by the time I got there, took four fire trucks to put the fire out. Right. And, and you, you, you watch something like that happen and you, you wonder what, what God is doing. And so we dug all the, all the junk out and took us two years and we had to get ready to raise the money. And when, when, when I thought, now, what am I, what's Rita and I going to do? And I'm, I can say this because I'm not here to brag about me. It's not like I'm at my own church. Where I'm not trying to brag about me. But but we had just we just left the Assemblies of God, and we had thirty thousand dollars in retirement there. Right. And so we had just, they'd given it back to us to, 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 because I was no longer assemblies of God to put it somewhere else. And so I said, Oh, I've got 30,000 We can Cause it took us $6 million to, to rebuild everything we lost in the fire. And, and so I thought, okay, what else, what else do I have? And Holy spirit said, well, you got that 47 MGTC. And I thought, yay, yay, yay. right. Surely you don't mean that Lord, right? And then we were talking with a brother just before the service about these kind of things. And, and I thought, you know what, there there are, I don't, there are not many MGTCs that old around there, but, but you know what, it's a, it's a car. Am I going to stand before God's throne someday and find out what he wanted me to do under the inspiration of the spirit for this building program. And I held on to a stupid 1947 car. So the MGTC went into the, into the building program. And can I tell you, funny, please give. I got to tell you a story. I when the 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 gentleman that helped us raise the money, because six million is a lot of money to raise. And I'm not a fundraiser. So we brought in a Christian, a believer to help us raise the money. And and so after he'd met with a bunch of people in the church, uh, we I had to take him to dinner. So we're we're at the restaurant after we had our first round of meetings with him. And he said to me, so have you and Rita decided what you're going to do? And I said, no, we, we, we still, we got to pray about it. I haven't, I haven't decided. And he said, well, I just did a campaign for a church in Modesto and the senior pastor gave the equivalent of his year's salary. And I didn't hear anything else. He said the rest of dinner. <laughs> right? So so by the time I got home, Rita was already read after eight o'clock at night, the Rita's eyes may be open, but there's nobody home. So, so, so she's already asleep in bed. And literally I'm, I'm sitting in the bathtub talking to the Lord about this whole thing, a year's salary. I mean, how in the world are we going to do that? Our girls were in college at Lee and, and how's that, how's that going to happen? And, and and I reminded the Lord, it's funny how we do that. I remind, as if he didn't know. I said, Lord, you remember when my dad died, he gave his life to the ministry. And when he died, one of the burdens on his heart was he left my mom in Africa, a sum total of $7,000. That's all he left her. And and, 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 and and now we had to bring her out here. and Now we're having to take care. And, and you, you see, Lord, when you give to the ministry, look look at... Uh, Well, my mom had had a stroke two years before while I was in India on a mission trip and the It's a social worker at the hospital had worked at a Christian ministry in Seattle that had assisted living and nursing care. And before I even got home, she would arranged for mom to be released from the hospital and sent to that nursing home. And just like that, when I was complaining to the Lord about what my dad had nothing at the end of his life and, and the Holy Spirit said, where's your mom? Right. You ever been there with the Lord? Um, I knew where she was, but I didn't want to say it. Right. Because Krista Ministries took care of her for the remaining seven years of her life. Right. At assist in assisted living. She lived for another seven years and was not very ambulatory, but was totally, you know, were there and with it. And 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 I said, Well, Lord, you're taking care. Then then don't you think I can take care of you and Rita? Yeah. And you know what? We're in a position right now. Honestly, I'm not continuing to pastor because we couldn't retire. We could retire. The Lord has blessed us beyond anything we could ever have imagined. So when you're Barnabas and you say yes to the Holy Spirit, uh, he's going to take care of you, whether it's in an assisted living that you didn't even pay for. Or whether it's in enough funds to allow you someday to retire, I don't think I'm ever probably going to. In the battle we're in in this nation right now, I think it would be dereliction of duty for a pastor to retire and go play golf in Kona or whatever. And if you've seen me play golf, you know how terrible that would be. But but so Barnabas, but here we go. Chapter five. Turn the page, and in chapter five we get another response to Ananias and Sapphira to the Holy Spirit. They were in the same meetings. They were in the same worship environment up front. They saw the same miracles. They experienced the same Holy Spirit. They were absolutely smack dab in the middle of the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit. History history will ever record called Pentecost. They were there in the middle of it. And they, they, they saw the needs, but they watched Barnabas like, whoa, Barnabas. Whoa, he's awesome. What a great minister. And they think, oh, I think I'd kind of like to be recognized like that. So let's sell our piece of property, but we need at least a third of it ourselves. So we'll hide it and we'll tell Peter and the church that this is all. And you know the story: they come in and they say, "This is this is all." He says, "This is all we've got." And Are you sure? Peter says, and then he says, "Why have you conspired to lie against the Holy Spirit?" Uh, boom! And don't you aren't you glad God doesn't do that anymore? Right. And then he leaves and his wife, maybe she'd gone to the grocery store or something. She was late for service. And so she comes in and Peter asks her, is, is you giving? Yeah, we're giving this much. Is it everything? Yes. Why did you lie to God? The feet of the young men that just buried your husband or wait, Boom. Why does God, I mean, it seems so, I'm I'm glad he doesn't do that. But this is how serious, this is the launch of the church. Whenever God does something new, there's always some real judgment. Nadab and Abihu are an example of when God got ready to do something new with the tabernacle. And Nadab and Abihu messed around with strange fire. So, same people. Barnabas and Ananias' fire. Same people in the same congregation experiencing the same Holy Spirit and look how differently they responded. Two different uh, two other outcomes outside of Jerusalem quickly. Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Violent persecution breaks out, Stephen's arrested and stoned to death. All hell breaks loose in the city against Christians, Acts chapter 8, and verse 1. And they're scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And it looks like a tragedy, but in actuality, it's God using what the enemy intended for evil, for good. Because wherever they go, they go preaching the gospel, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Philip, one of the first deacons, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. And now full of faith in the Spirit, Philip becomes a fiery evangelist under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Broken bodies are healed. People believe and are baptized in water. Evil spirits come out of many of them. Many receive a great joy breaks out. Peter and John come up and pray for them. And, and the converts that have been freshly baptized, and they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has come in power, bringing the kingdom of God to Samaria. And in this context, two people respond to this, this next outpouring of the Holy Spirit. First, you got Simon the sorcerer, right? And you know his story. For a long time, he was considered to be like a god, He could do miracles, I'm sure, under the inspiration of demons. And everybody thought that he was amazing. He'd convinced them that he was someone great. Acts chapter 8 and verse 9, all pretty heady stuff. He's been saved. He's born again. He's been baptized in water like all the others. He experiences the Holy Spirit, sees what's going on. But he suddenly concludes, oh, this is something I can use for myself. I could use this. Right? And so he goes to Peter, right, responding to the same Holy Spirit everybody else did. Same move of God everybody else did, but he concludes this is something I can, I can make money with. This, Whew. think how many American ministries and American evangelists and pastors have made have made money off of the Kingdom of God. Right, it's the mercy of God that sometimes it takes the secular press. To to ferret that out. But just sheer making money out of the kingdom of God. And that's what Simon the sorcerer wanted to do. And you know the, 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 the chilling news where... Peter says to him, may your money perish with you. You've got no part or share in this ministry. Your heart isn't right before God. You're full of bitterness and captive. And to my knowledge, tradition says that he he never did repent because tradition says he actually raised up a cult that followed him that drew people away from the kingdom of God. That was Simon, the sorcerer's response to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You've got the move of the Holy Spirit here by God's grace at First New Testament Church. But only you are responsible for what you do with what God is saying and doing here. Only you. And then, of course, thankfully, chapter eight doesn't end that way on that kind of sour note. I love the next part of the chapter, because now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south. So Philip, the evangelism evangelist, heads south down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, look at the difference. Simon, the sorcerer, is there always got looking for an angle. How can I benefit myself with this? How can I bet somebody mentioned this morning motives. Somebody from the platform mentioned motives this morning. Isn't that the challenge of everybody that's ever been and ever will be in public ministry is why am I doing this? Am I doing this to be seen? Or am I doing this because I think I'm cute? Am I doing this because I think I've got I've got something to offer or am I just trying to be obedient to the Lord? We all have to answer that question all the time. Right. And and Simon, the sorcerer, failed tragically. But, but here comes an Ethiopian eunuch from a Gentile nation, not knowing anything except what he's heard or what he's reading out of Isaiah. And you, if, you're, if, you're a, if you're going to be a learner, it, you have to come humbly. Uh, if you're going to be a part of this university that that a a pastor friend there is working you got to come with humility you can never come thinking you know it all you come to a learning process like he did with a degree of humility before the lord he comes with it came with a deep desire to increase his understanding and experience of god that takes a level of of humility and self-deprecation when once you think you've got it all figured out i don't care how many degrees you have or how long you've been doing this i don't care how seasoned you are in the ministry. There is there. We're never done learning. We won't be done till we see him face to face. He was being diligent. He was humble. He was being diligent on his way home to Ethiopia. He's wrestling with Old Testament passages, trying to have them make sense, even reading them out loud like you would do when you try to understand something. He's a seeker. He's a serious seeker. Here's an Ethiopian seeking understanding. And the chapter ends with this Ethiopian uh, uh, court official being saved and baptized by Philip the evangelist. Two totally different responses. One looking for an angle that they can better themselves and better their their pocketbook. And the other laying everything aside saying, I got to know this one Who came in Bethlehem in the form of a baby and gave his life for us. I've got to know him. Oh, isn't it Peter? Isn't it Paul that says, I I want to know him more. uh, Right? And the power of his resurrection. We all want to stop there. Right? But the rest of that verse is in the fellowship of his sufferings. Right. I want to know him more. God, give us as Pentecostal believers that embodiment of the seekers of the of the of the mature Pentecost. You're in a mature Pentecostal church. I promise you. I'm not saying that I've got super discernment, but I know I know your pastor and I know the ministry here and the ministers. You're in a mature Pentecostal b- believers environment where God's moving by his Holy Spirit. But don't. Don't write on that. Don't count on that. It won't wash before the throne. If you say, "Well, I went to I went to First New Testament Church," and, and Peter will say, "I don't care." Um, went to Westgate Chapel. Well, I don't care. Um, it, it's it's. Are you walking in the power of the Spirit that He has for every believer, not just pastors?